Jesus came to save a diverse people. And through his blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now, tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for tax. And they handed him a Roman coin. He asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is the word of the Lord. Hey, you may be seated. Okay. Okay, don't trip me, Meg. Uh, well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. Good to see you guys. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, welcome, and welcome to all of you watching at home. Big day today. Cruise front row. Kaylee Cruz getting baptized here in a minute. We'll get through this in a minute. That's the big show today. This is all just window dressing here, so we're very excited. Thank you guys. Kaylee's been with us a long, long time. Um, also, this is just by way of preface, because I know there's a pandemic going on, if you guys are not aware. And, uh, you know, I got uh, seasonal allergies. Anybody else got seasonal al- allergies? And uh, earlier in the week, I played the game, is this allergies or is this COVID? Uh, I had a doctor tell me it wasn't COVID, and I, but I wasn't convinced. I like you. I'm not sure about the doctor's. I'm sorry for the, if there's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dr. Broadstone. It's, it's me, it's not you. So I went and got a COVID test anyway. I don't have COVID, okay? So the reason I tell you that is I cannot guarantee that I will not at some point in this sermon start coughing. And that, you know, all you front row people, am I in the COVID splash zone or something as I start coughing up here? I don't have COVID. I have allergies. I've confirmed it by multiple doctors. So I just felt like I needed to say that on the front end uh, in case I start coughing. And also, just because I'm mildly uncomfortable right now, uh, the text for today was decided like two years ago. Uh, this, this text was not intended to be picked the day, uh, or the I don't know, is the election decided? The week after the election, depending on your perspective on how the voting went. Uh, and so here we are, talking about politics and taxes uh, right after a pretty uh, contentious election. Uh, a few weeks ago, We wrestled with some of Jesus' teaching on authority. And if you struggle with authority, like most of us do, you probably struggle with the idea of power. What is power? How is power to be wielded? How am I to relate to power? And for Christians, one of the most challenging places that authority and power come together and confront us is around this issue of government and politics. And how are we to live, um, you know, fundamentally as citizens of heaven? That's what the scriptures repeatedly describe those whose faith is in Christ. We are citizens of heaven, and yet we find ourselves, particularly as Americans, with this 
huge privilege of participating in the American idea, the, the American experiment, as some have called it, this idea that there could be a government by the people, for the people. So how do we as citizens of this other heavenly kingdom that is here, but not quite here, how do we live and engage in authority and power in the place we are, particularly when we have so many privileges as American citizens? And so many of us participated in that great idea this last week through voting. Um, how are Christians to engage in a political process such as ours? Uh, how are Christians to respond as the church after such a contentious election? Half of the people in this room or watching online are likely relatively distraught this morning. The other half is perhaps hopeful and maybe relieved. How do we look at each other now? Will, will we forfeit our, our unity in Christ and our blessing as being a unified church? Will we forfeit that for the sake of earthly politics? How are citizens of heaven to engage the world in some ways as dual citizens? citizens of the United States and as the kingdom of heaven. I'll, I'll remind some of you, I need to remind myself of this often, um, our ultimate destiny is to live under a monarchy. Uh, so in the heart of every Christian should be this drumbeat for monarchy. One day we will worship King Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. So one day we're all going to live in this divine benevolent monarchy. But as for now, we live between two worlds. And it's very difficult for us to know what that precisely means for us what that requires of us, particularly when, at least it seems, so many of us see politics so differently. So the title of the sermon today is The God of Politics, and it, it comes from this really difficult passage here in Matthew 22. Uh, the first few verses set the context for us. I think 15 gets to the heart of it. It says, Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. You've been journey we've been in Matthew for a, a couple of years now. Uh, since Matthew 12, that phrase, uh, seeking to trap Jesus, should be sounding really familiar by now. This is happening over and over. The Pharisees, since Matthew chapter 12, have been trying to set a trap for Jesus so they could justify killing him. The only question, so that's the motive. Let's kill Jesus. The only question became a matter of how. How are we going to kill him? Up to this point, they've been going the theological angle, the Pharisees have, because that's their primary field of responsibility is theology. If we can label him a heretic, then under Jewish law, we can justify killing him. And if you've been watching or listening for a while, it's not working so well for them to try to get Jesus to be labeled a heretic. People keep following him. He's performing miracles. He's fulfilling prophecy. They couldn't trap him in his theology. And so now they start to try to trap him in his politics. If they, can't, if they can't convince the Jews that he's a heretic, maybe they can convince the Romans he's not a true patriot. And then the political zealots will do him in. This is the angle that the Pharisees have decided to take now. Again, they don't really care about his politics or his theology so much as they've just decided they will kill Jesus. So here's the political trap. Verse 17. Tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A few verses before, they called him teacher, which, as we've said many times, teacher in Matthew uh, betrays some of the heart of the question asker. When, when Matthew shows somebody calling Jesus teacher, it's often connected to insincere motives, lack of faith. 
So they're being all polite. You're impartial, Jesus. You don't take any sides. Should we pay taxes or not? Uh, The Pharisees are trying to see if Jesus's revolutionary theology will also produce revolutionary politics. It's a clever way for them to ask, what's your relationship to the government? And what are your followers' relationships to the government going to be? Uh, So, yeah, I guess we don't really need that verse up. It's okay. When they're asking pay taxes, they're referring to a very specific tax. It was a tax called the head tax. And this was a tax that had been imposed about 25 years before this time. It wasn't an income tax. It wasn't a sales tax. It wasn't a property tax. It was a head tax. It was a tax on your head. It was a tax placed on Jewish Jewish people for the privilege of being Caesar's subjects. Not citizens of Caesar, but subjects of Caesar. So just try to imagine this philosophically for a minute. I am going to invade your nation. I'm going to impress, oppress your people. And then I will place a tax on you for the privilege of being oppressed by me. You know, that's what the head tax is that they're asking him about. And why are they asking Jesus about this specific tax? Well, right when this was imposed 25 years before, a man named Judas the Galilean rose up. So you got someone with a J name coming from Galilee. Start setting some of your antennas off. Judas the Galilean rose up amongst the Jews and, and began teaching first that Jews should not pay the head tax. No Jew should pay the head tax. Second, he went to Jerusalem and he cleared out the temple of all of the Gentiles and all of the Romans in the temple. And third, his primary message was, we have no king but God, and we should set up the earthly kingdom of heaven here. So don't follow Caesar. Caesar isn't your God. Caesar isn't your king. Only God is king. And so now here comes another J-man from Galilee. And side note, Judas the Galilean led an armed revolt. Roman soldiers came in. It was bloody. It was violent. He was ended up put to death. Now, 25 years later, another J-man from Galilee rises up who preaches the kingdom of God is at hand. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus has come in and cleaned the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He's doing the same things that they just remembered Judas the Galilean doing. And so they're saying, what's next? The head tax? Are you going to try to lead a political revolt like what this man before you did? So they're asking, are you going to lead a revolt? What do you think about this controversial head tax? And now look at the pickle they've put Jesus in because, you know, something that's, that we've lost, I think, in, in the last 50 years of American evangelicalism is the expectation that the kingdom of God in Jesus's day was going to be a right here, right now, concrete kingdom. Like the streets would be different in the kingdom of God. The actual streets, your relationships would be different. The food would be different. It was a, a concrete, earthy reality. It wasn't just this spiritual notion of one day we'll float in the clouds or something like that. So they were expecting something to happen right here and right now. And so to those Jews, if Jesus says, yes, pay the head tax, then maybe the Jews will bail on Jesus because he's not an Israel uh, patriot, an Israelite patriot. You see what I'm saying? If, if Jesus comes out as pro-head tax, then to all of his Jewish followers, that sounds like they're saying, yeah, he's pro-oppression. And so they'll move on from Jesus. But if Jesus comes out and says, no, I'm anti-head tax, then all the Romans will say, oh, he's leading a revolution, just like Judas the Galilean. Let's kill him. Y'all feel the trap and how it's coming right at his politics and his relationship with the government. Both sides of, of this equation are essentially asking Jesus, are you a revolutionary come to bring the kingdom of God? They mean it differently. They're coming at it from different perspectives, but that's the same question. 
And Jesus has a brilliant answer. You see the crowds or the Pharisees respond with amazement. I will warn you though, it is not a simple answer. It's not a straightforward, clean cut, simplistic answer. He rebukes their hypocrisy and he asks for some of the money they're so worried about. Here's his answer to the complexity I've laid out for you. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? The money. Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So that's Jesus' answer to how Christians are to engage in politics. (laughs) What's happening here? The first thing I want to point out in Jesus' response is, do you notice how he he avoids a simplistic answer? He avoids a simplistic answer. Simplistic thinking is where you reduce complexity to make it more manageable. All of us do this. All of us try to take very complicated things, and if we can boil it down to being just about one thing, it gives us a sense of control, it gives us a sense of understanding, and no matter what you're talking about, all of us have this temptation to overly simplify complex things to make it more manageable. They're trying to force Jesus into a rigid yes or no answer, and he refuses. He doesn't play the game. And I would just say to you, beware the person that tries to force your politics into a rigid yes or no category. We see this on the cable news networks, right? If you guys watch that, someone comes on and they'll be like, yes or no, do you support this? And the other person starts talking like, no, 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 yes or no. Are you for this or are you against this? And they just start shouting at each other, demanding you say yes or no, yes or no. It's almost always somebody trying to trap you so they can label you, so they can demonize you and kill you. Whether that's kill your reputation or here with Jesus, kill you physically. Beware the person that tries to force you into rigid yes or no categories all the time. The Christian life is one lived by wisdom, and it often requires great nuance. Some issues are simple. Some issues are very black and white. Most issues are complicated and require Christians to engage it with wisdom and nuance. Did you notice in this last election cycle that both sides claimed the future of America was at stake? If you vote for the other guy, it's all over. And if you vote for the other guy, it's all over. Not just like we won't like the policies, but like we will not have a nation four years from now. And so then people start shouting at each other, do you love America? Do you love America? And that's you either could say yes or no. There's no middle ground. Are you for this candidate? Are you for this candidate? And they're forcing us down these rigid black and white lines. Beware. Beware people who make you do that. Politics, especially in the United States, is rarely that simple. It is rarely that simple. Beware the person who says Jesus was a Republican or a Democrat. Beware the person who says Christians can only vote one way. This is what's happening here, essentially. Jesus, are you red or are you blue? Where do you stand on this hot-button issue? And Jesus will not play their game. He avoids the simplistic, reductionistic answer. Instead of just giving them a yes or no, he gives them a both and. And we're going to talk about that some. But, but what the world needs more than angry Christian Republicans and angry Christian Democrats is loving, nuanced Christians who engage politics with wisdom and nuance and avoid simplistic thinking. Okay, that was unexpected, but I'll, I will take that. A wa- so one of the big lessons here as I see it is wise Christians avoid the temptation of thinking simplistically about politics. 
Second, the second lesson that I see from Jesus here is he avoids political apathy. Some people give him the complexity or this kind of over-spiritualized version of Christianity we have where it's like we're just going to hold on till we die and go into the heavenly kingdom. So what's it matter? Uh, my vote doesn't matter anyway. Which, boy, seems like some votes really matter this time around. Um, that's a side note. Maybe it's stubbornness. I won't be forced into your box, so I just won't play at all. Jesus could have said, listen, man, I'm a spiritual teacher. I don't want to answer your question about money. I don't even have any money. That's not, that's not what Jesus does. The wisdom of Jesus leads him to a kind of political engagement that was unheard of in his day. I want to try to make us all a little bit uncomfortable here right now to see uh, how powerful what Jesus is doing. So I think, Lord willing, we got some pictures of the coin Jesus asked for. Yeah, that's a denarius. That's an actual denarius uh, from Caesar Tiberius, or however you say his name. You can buy this online. I found this. So this is a listing. It's like 20 grand if you want to go buy a 2,000-year-old coin that Jesus, maybe, maybe that's the one that he touched. Maybe it is. Uh, so if you've got 20 grand to blow, that's it for you. Um, okay, so Jesus says, the, li- the Greek word here is icon. Whose icon is on that? And can you s- keep it up? Connor, come on. Uh, I'm just kidding. Connor and I play video games together, or at least we used to. And so I call him Carter when he, when he uh, doesn't play well, but he's better at the game than I am. So that's an inside joke with us. I'm not actually yelling at the slide man. Sorry. Uh, so obviously, whose image is on there? Caesar, right? Caesar. Uh, anybody here read Greek? Uh, or ancient, ancient Roman Greek around there. It's a real mess if you guys never had the privilege of studying. It's all capital letters, no punctuation. It's quite the thing. Uh, so Caesar's image is on there. It's a picture of the emperor. And now I want you to listen very closely. Well, I think I've got a slide for it. Here's what that inscription says. Translated it for you. Do we have that? Yeah. Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, pontific, pom- whatever, Maximus, high priest. How, <laughs> how do you think people would respond today? How would people in our church respond today if that's what was on our money? Whoever the, whoever the president at the time was, President Trump, son of the high God, pontifex, pontifex, pontifex Maximus, high priest. We would lose our minds, right? And here's Jesus being handed this money with this writing on it, And isn't there a part of you that would expect him to say, away with this idolatrous money, blasphemy. To pay taxes is to contribute to the oppressive colonizing empire and its emperor worship. (laughs) But no, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't flip out about the heresy on the money. He doesn't flip out about all the wicked evils of the Roman empire. What does he say? about what they should do with their money. It's not an apathetic response. He doesn't just check out. He says, listen, it's his money, so give it to him. So is Jesus pro-head tax? It's got Caesar's image on it, so give it to Caesar. If he's asking for it, give it to him. The first part of Jesus' answer is teaching Christians to respect the state. Respect the government. Conceptually, a government provides many services for its people. There's lots we can talk about. Roads, police, uh, food standards, education. On and on we could go. Uh, Judas the Galilean, one of his rallying cries was, what is taxation but an introduction to slavery? 
Jesus of Nazareth does not agree. He does not agree that taxes are inherently evil or inherently wrong. States have a purpose, and Christians are to respect that purpose, helping to lift up the lives of the entire community. I know that's very complicated, and we could have genuine debates about how should governments spend tax dollars, what is appropriate expenditures for governments to do or not to do. But you have to see, even with blasphemous, idolatrous money, Jesus is saying, give them what they're asking for. There's a respect towards the state that is due of every Christian. For Jesus and for the Christian, apathy is the wrong approach towards government. Respecting government is the way a Christian respects God, is a way the Christian respects God. Christians engage governing authorities in the political process with wisdom and respect. We avoid simplicity and apathy. And maybe a real simple way to put it is we're to give government their due. We're to give the government their due. This is a correction for those of us who think that taxes are wrong or sinful or that government is inherently bad or evil. Christians give their governments their due. But we cannot stop there. That's the first half of Jesus' lesson. There's a final, or his first half of his response, rather. There's a final lesson here that Jesus teaches us with the second half of his answer. So Christians avoid simplistic thinking. We avoid political apathy. And we give Jesus our allegiance. Jesus demands our allegiance. He's pulling off a, this is a, I think it's a funny way to say it. it might be confusing. So you decide. He's pulling off a double revolution. Jesus is revolting against the way revolutions happen. He's, he's doing a revolution of how revolutions happen. Let me show you. Uh, look again at the second half of his response. He says, give to God what belongs to God. Follow Jesus' thinking here. Whose image is on the money? Caesar's. If it's got his image on it, it belongs to him, so give it to him. So give to God what has his image on it. Who has God's image on it? Somebody say it. People, we do. You and me, baby. All of us. Humans. We are made in the image of God. Caesar's money has his image on it. It belongs to Caesar. If Caesar asks it, give it to him. Human beings, every one of us, bear God's image. If God asks for it, we give it to him. You, uh, yes, you, we are to respect the state, so we give it its due, but we also give it some pretty serious boundaries. This I can't say this for sure, but I suspect this might be one of the first teachings on limited government in ancient history. This is a corrective against those who think the government is the savior or the solution to every problem. Yes, give them their due. Yes, they have a place. Also, be wary of giving them your soul or trusting them to heal and cure the souls and all that ills human beings. To the one side that says no taxes ever, it's all evil, it's all slavery, we say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. And to the other side that says, give the government whatever they ask, they'll fix it for us, we say, no, 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 they cannot have it all. Give the government their due with boundaries. There are some places that government has rightful domains, and we are to respect that. But there are places that it does not. And most significantly is the the place of the human soul. This is where Jesus' point gets so fascinating and so challenging. And I can almost feel the Pharisees chewing on this in their amazement. So first, he's demanding Christians refuse to give their ultimate allegiance to any state, any nation, any party beyond him. 
There is only one throne available in the human heart, and it's reserved for Christ alone. The wise, engaged Christian approaches politics as one whose allegiance is to a king and his kingdom, not a party and its politicians. So, the wise, engaged Christian seeks first the kingdom of God, not a party or a nation. When a state's policies contradict the kingdom of God, we give our souls to the kingdom of God, not to the state. And if somebody has tried to make that sound simple to you, I think they've done you a disservice. This is far more complicated than it sounds. I'm going to make the statement again. When a state's policies contradict the kingdom of God, we give our souls to the kingdom of God, not to any state. Let me, let me try to... Can you all handle just a little bit of discomfort together? I'm uncomfortable. Can we be uncomfortable together, Glenda? Me and Glenda will be uncomfortable. So let me talk to you. Let me give you an example of how complicated this is. Okay. If you're pro-life, pro-life, amen? Anybody? Anybody willing to amen pro-life? Come on. That's the, water, that's the watermelon. You know, watermelon at the county fair. They throw it up and you just knock. That's not controversial. We are pro-life. 99.9% of us. We are pro-life. We love life. We've done whole sermons on how much our church loves life. If you're pro-life, you want to see end of abortion in the United States. Amen? Amen. Now, pro-choice Democrats want to increase abortion rights, which if you're a kingdom-minded Christian, should make it very difficult for you to vote for a pro-life, pro-choice Democrat. You understand what I'm saying? We're pro-life. We want to see abortions go away. Pro-choice Democrats want to see abortion rights expanded, a kingdom-minded Christian should have a hard time voting for a pro-choice Democrat. But if you're pro-life, you're also against forced hysterectomies and putting children in cages at the U.S. border. Amen? Okay. It's alleged pro-life Republicans that are doing that. So if you're a kingdom-minded Christian, it should be very difficult for you to vote for pro-life Republicans. To be a kingdom-minded Christian should bring to you a sense of political homelessness in a country like ours. Beware those who offer you simple solutions to complex problems. The feelings of confusion, the wrestling with complexity, so do we not vote at all? Go back to the previous three steps. I'm saying it's just very complicated even around a simple, seemingly simple, no-brainer issue like being pro-life. The feelings of confusion or complexity are often indications that your allegiance is to the king and his kingdom. And the anger that you feel to the other side is often an indication of your idolatry being exposed. Kingdom-minded Christians will not fit neatly anywhere politically. The answer to the complexity comes when we embrace the nature of Christ's revolution, that revolution of revolutions that I was talking about. Give to God what is his, a human soul, a human heart. You will never see Jesus instructing his followers to pursue positions of power or persons of influence. You will never see Jesus instructing his followers to kill their enemies and put themselves into positions of power you will find Jesus moving to the margins of society. You will find Jesus avoiding the spotlight and the sword and moving to the oppressed and to the marginalized. 
you'll find Jesus laying down his throne to pick up a servant's towel. When your first allegiance is to a king and his kingdom, you will understand that the Christian revolution has always started on the margins. This is what changed everything about the Christian revolution. It didn't pursue places of power. It went to the least of these, to the overlooked, to the margins, which is, which is why Christians throughout history have laid their lives down for their brothers and sisters. It's why we've strived to be content with obscurity like Jesus was. Which is why throughout history, Christians have laid down their rights for the good of their brothers and sisters. And so, Christians have abandoned the gospel when we think the kingdom moves forward from positions of power and prestige. Regardless of which side of the aisle you identify with most. When our hope is in a candidate or a country, we have abandoned the gospel. When our politics keep us from giving to God what is his, precious image bearers worth far more than silver or gold, we have abandoned the gospel. When we feel hate stirring in us for people who see politics so complicated, who see it different, and we hate them for it, we've abandoned the gospel of Christ. When our politics move us to trust the state and not God to heal the world, we've abandoned the gospel. So Christians set their hearts on a king in a kingdom. We pursue his way of obscurity, service, and love. We give the government its due, but we put boundaries on it. And then rooted and grounded in the loving presence of Christ, we learn to walk in a very complicated world with wisdom and love. This is the great promise we celebrate in communion, that Christ has made us one, and he has filled our souls with his presence. Rooted and grounded in there, we can follow his spirit and learn to live as citizens of heaven. And so we call our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it, and he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. So I invite you to take your cup, to open it and remember what has secured your place with God. Take the wafer and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. Open the juice and remember what has made you one and what has sealed you and your brothers and sisters as the children of God, the blood of Christ shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of him. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.